If public health is a population-based field of science for preventing diseases and promoting health, what can a corporate defense attorney possibly do to positively influence the health of millions of people? Well, discovering the impacts of toxic chemicals on a community and holding chemical companies accountable for their actions is a great place to start. In this episode, we'll be speaking with a special guest about his work on advocating for environmental justice through the practice of law and his book, Exposure, which was adapted into a feature film called Dark Waters. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. You're listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for all things public health and global health. From the sustainable development goals to the social determinants of health, as well as interesting dialogues about the diverse career opportunities that exist in these fields. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so other people like you can benefit from our content. My name is Gordon, and I'll be your host for this episode, along with my fellow co-hosts, Herva, Bindra, and our guest, Rob Balot. Rob Balot is a seasoned and internationally recognized litigator, advocate, and author. For more than 30 years, he has handled environmental issues of regulatory compliance, permitting, and corporate transactions. Rob has gained international prominence in connection with the uncovering of the worldwide impact of environmental contamination by the forever chemicals known as polyfluoroalkylated substances, or PFAS. To date, Rob has secured benefits in excess of $1 billion for a wide array of firm clients adversely impacted by PFAS contamination, including through key leadership positions in the nation's first class action, personal injury, medical monitoring, multi-district litigations, and jury trials involving PFAS. In 2017, Rob received the International Right Livelihood Award, also known as the Alternative Nobel Prize, for his decades of work on forever chemicals. Rob's story is chronicled in the book Exposure and is the inspiration for the feature film Dark Waters, as well as the documentary The Devil We Know. Rob, welcome to the Public Health Insight Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So after watching Dark Waters, uh, we were inspired to launch a whole series of podcast episodes where we specifically talk about movies that we like and bring those public health connections to our audience. And this generated a lot of discussion around your story as presented in the film and in your book around how you exposed the magnitude of environmental pollution by forever chemicals by chemical companies. So this was of a particular interest to us because of our focus on the concept of One Health, which is the connection between the health of animals, humans, and the shared environment. So these are some of the many reasons we were excited to have you onto the podcast to talk with us. Another reason we're excited as well is a lot of our audience members are students and early career professionals looking to make next steps in their career. And I was particularly interested in your law background. So I was hoping to hear from you around those specific topics. Specifically in your book, you talked about how you wanted to initially pursue a master's of public administration. So I'm a little curious if you could talk about that and what made you ultimately decide to pivot into 
law. Sure. You know, it. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to everybody today. And, you know, I, I guess I kind of got into the field of environmental law sort of a roundabout way. Uh, I actually, after graduating high school and finding that the science in mathematics fields were probably some of my worst areas, I was trying to find a way to avoid all of that going forward and ended up in a a small uh, college liberal arts school down in Sarasota where I could design my own curriculum called New College, uh, where I tried to avoid science and chemistry. And uh, actually it was during college that I thought I really wanted to, was interested in urban planning, urban studies, how cities grow and decline. I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, and this was the early 80s. And so we were watching the city that used to be a pretty big industrial powerhouse, uh, kind of slowly wither away at that point. So I was focused on that and thought I was going to go get a master's in public administration out of uh, college. And it was actually my dad, uh, who had been in the Air Force for 20 years, was retiring about that time. And he decided he was going to start a second career. He was going to go to law school. So he had just graduated law school while I was graduating college and uh, had said, you know, you really ought to look into law. You know, you can you, you have so many opportunities with a law degree. So I took his advice, uh, ended up in going to Ohio State Law School, and that kind of got me on to the, the legal path. Uh, it was during law school that I, I took a course on environmental law right at the end of law school that I thought was really interesting. So when I, uh, when I graduated and started looking around, what the law firm that, uh, that I joined happened to have an environmental group. And I joined knowing nothing about what that meant. What was environmental law? How did you practice that? And you know, nobody in my family really had worked at big law firms. My dad was just starting his legal career as a public uh, prosecutor. So it was a uh, uh, an educational process that has continued to this day. I've been there 30, 31 years now. So Rob, at Taft, which you explain in the book, uh, one of the first cases that you took on like during your practice of environmental law was, of course, the Tenet versus DuPont case. And can you talk a bit more about that experience, about working at Taft itself and how you got into, into that case and how that experience was for you? Sure. You know, when I started my legal career in 1990, a lot of what our firm was doing at the time was what they call Superfund uh, cleanup work. Uh, this was the federal statute that dealt with hazardous waste sites, you know, old chemical company dump sites all over the country, places that had been abandoned. So this, this piece of federal legislation basically said, if you had sent stuff to one of these sites, anybody that sent it, was responsible for trying to figure out how to clean it up and had to pay the cost. So a lot of what I did for eight years when I first started working there was learned how that system worked and was representing primarily our big chemical company clients, trying to help them navigate that world. And so not only was I learning how the Superfund cleanup site process worked, but I also was learning how you and how you help companies get permits to put things into the air, to emit things into the water, to get permits to operate landfills. And a lot of what I thought I was learning was <laughs> there were hazardous, nasty, toxic materials. Those were all on lists that were identified by federal or state agencies. 
And as long as you were making sure that you weren't emitting one of those things above whatever their limit was, you were doing what you needed to do. And that's the system I, I learned and I thought I understood after the first eight years or so of my practice. Um, and that's when I got a call one day on my office line from a gentleman and who was telling me about cows dying in West Virginia. And that uh, was Mr. Tennant, as you mentioned, the, the Tennant case. Mr. Tennant uh, was looking for assistance and trying to figure out what was in the water that his cows were drinking on a farm in West Virginia uh, that was causing these animals to get sick. Their teeth were turning black, they were getting tumors, they were wasting away, and not just the cows, but the deer, the fish, the wildlife in the area. And to him, this looked like a pretty simple, straightforward case. He could see white foam coming out of a pipe from a landfill right next to his property. And he could see that foam going through the creek. That's what the cows were drinking. And when I heard this, I thought this seemed pretty simple and straightforward. After all, that's what I had been helping our clients do is to get permits to run landfills like that, you know, or to put things into the environment. So Seeing how obvious this was, you could see this white foam. We thought, gee, I, I should be able to help this guy out. And frankly, it should be fairly easy and straightforward. This is a permitted landfill. There should be a permit from the state that identifies any toxic or hazardous materials and what their limits are. And probably, there's probably something above one of those permit limits. And we'll probably get to the bottom of it pretty quickly. That's not how it ended up. <laughs> ended up being a lot more complicated than that. For sure. And this was a really different case versus, I guess, the other cases that Taft took on. What kind of reactions or maybe even stigma did you face while taking on this case? Yeah, you know, at the time, most of our clients at our law firm paid by the hour, you know, an hourly rate. And these were fairly high rates because we, we typically represented corporations. Um, and in this particular case, Mr. Tennant and his family um, it, it became clear that these were not folks that were going to be able to pay those kinds of rates. So we actually took that case on. It was the first time our firm took on a case on what they call a contingency fee, where the lawyers don't get paid at all unless the client actually recovers something. But we didn't think it was going to be that big of a risk at the time because, again, I th we thought this was a fairly straightforward issue. There was something clearly in this white foam. We would get to the bottom of it pretty quickly and wrap it up pretty quick. Uh, but it, it <laughs> turned out, as I said, to be a lot more complicated, realizing there was a chemical in that water that nobody had ever heard of, was completely unregulated, yet was toxic, persistent, bioaccumulative, carcinogenic, um, and led to something where we found out not only was this stuff contaminating the foam these cows were drinking, it was all over the planet in uh, worldwide contamination. So that awareness, though, <laughs> emerged over many years. But when we first took that on, we thought this would be a fairly straightforward case. And so I don't think many people were too concerned about it. But as the years rolled on, it became a lot more complicated. Yeah, and I think that awareness was articulated really well in the movie and the book, and it detailed the journey of the discovery of this chemical, the PFOAs, that's used in the production of Teflon, which is, I think, really highlighted well. But 
Could you walk us through how you came about this revelation about this chemical, its negative impacts and the scale of which it's impacting the world? Why was this chemical used in the first place? And was DuPont the only company to manufacture or use it? Or were there other kind of players in that? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I first stumbled upon documents. Gosh, this was probably in the year 2000. Uh, we took on this case in 1998 and started digging through internal files by the company that owned the landfill, which happened to be DuPont Chemical Company, one of the world's largest chemical companies at the time. Uh, we started digging through the documents to try to find out what was going into that landfill. And it was in that process that we found out this chemical I mentioned uh, was in the water called PFOA, perfluorooctanoic acid. And what we found out reading these internal documents, this was a completely man-made chemical, didn't exist on the planet prior to World War II, had been invented by 3M right after the war. And uh, 3M had also invented a very closely related chemical called PFOS. Uh, Both of these chemicals were called C8s because of their chemical structure. They had carbons, eight carbons attached to fluorine. And this is where my nightmare began, (laughs) where I thought I had avoided chemistry and all that. I had to hire experts to help me understand why was that significant? Why was this chemical structure significant? And what these experts uh, eventually got me to understand was this chemical structure of these carbons attached to fluorine didn't exist in nature. But when man made these things, they were incredibly strong, incredibly stable. So these chemicals didn't break down. They didn't fall apart. They were incredibly useful in manufacturing operations. 3M was using one of them, the PFOS, in making things like Scotchgard, waterproofing, stain-resistant type material coatings, firefighting foams. But this other one, this other C8 called PFOA, They were selling most of that to DuPont, and DuPont was using it in the process to make Teflon. It wasn't an ingredient, but it was something they used in the manufacturing process. DuPont was their primary customer for that. But we ended up learning over the years was these two chemicals weren't just used by 3M and DuPont. They were used in all kinds of products beginning in the 1950s when they started being invented in waterproof, stain-resistant clothing and carpeting, fast food wrappers and packaging, things that keep things from being grease-resistant or waterproof, cosmetics, you know, things to make your cosmetics waterproof. Uh, uh, Like I mentioned, firefighting foam, uh, dental floss, computer chip processing, massive array of different products. But because of the timing, These chemicals being invented right after World War II was decades before the U.S. EPA even existed. U.S. EPA didn't come into existence until 1970. The first federal laws regulating what you do to test chemicals before they go out onto the market to to, to hopefully be able to show that they're safe, those laws didn't come out until the late 70s. So when when those laws were finally passed, They really focused on new chemicals from that point forward. Well, for these chemicals like PFOA and PFOS that were already out there, it was left 
and I'm kind of simplifying how the law works here, but essentially it was left up to the companies who were making them or using them. They had to alert the US EPA if there was information in their files saying there was any kind of substantial risk to either human health or the environment. And what I was seeing in these internal documents was even though this was decades before the EPA existed, decades before a lot of these rules came out, the companies themselves were studying them, doing tests. They had found that the, that PFOA, for example, was incredibly toxic to multiple different animal species, different organ systems, you know, rats, rabbits, guinea pigs, dogs, monkeys, and not only toxic, but persistent. Not only if it got out into the environment, these chemicals would never break down. They That's why we hear them referred to as forever chemicals, because this carbon fluorine bond is so strong, it doesn't break down under natural conditions. So the, the companies like 3M and DuPont, their scientists understood, hey, if this stuff gets out into the environment, it isn't going to break down. What's it going to do to the living things? That's when they started doing these tox toxicology tests, found it was incredibly toxic, not, but not only persisted in the environment, that the chemicals would get into living things who were exposed, not just the animals, but to people. By the late 1970s, the companies realized these chemicals that were getting into the blood of humans who were exposed. They started testing their own workers by 1977, for example, at 3M, found that the stuff would get into the blood, stay there and build up to higher and higher levels over time. 3M alerted DuPont to that. DuPont tested its workers, saw the same thing. So they knew it was toxic, persistent, bioaccumulative. And then by the 1980s, they were, had done their first cancer studies. And they had confirmed that PFOA caused testicular tumors in rats. A second study by the early 90s found a tumor triad, not only testicular tumors, but pancreatic and, lytic, I mean, and liver cell. So even though, again, this was still unregulated, because despite all these studies I was seeing, what I was also seeing is the companies were saying repeatedly, we don't think this suggests any threat to human health or the environment, so they weren't disclosing it to the agencies. Yet internally, by 1988, DuPont scientists had sat down and classified PFOA as a confirmed animal carcinogen, possible human carcinogen, they even set the world's first drinking water guideline because they knew, hey, this stuff, we're, we're bringing it into our big plant down in West Virginia. It's in being emitted into the air. It's being emitted into the river through a pipe that goes directly into the river. We're dumping it in unlined pits everywhere. It's seeping into the ground. They went out and tested the public water supply fields that were right next to the plant by 1984 and found that the chemical was in public water. So their scientists sat down and actually developed the first drinking water guideline for the chemical in 1988, no more than one part per billion. And what they were finding in the local community, three to five times higher than that. But as I'm reading all these documents, what I'm seeing is they weren't disclosing that. Nobody knew that because it was still unregulated, but it was unregulated because the information wasn't being disclosed. So uh, pretty mind-opening uh, material that we were digging through when I was reading all this in the early 2000s to realize 
This stuff is incredibly toxic, persistent, bioaccumulative, carcinogenic, and it's likely not just there outside that plant in West Virginia or up in Minnesota where it was being made, but likely all over the country. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. And I'm imagining the motivation for them doing that is because Teflon probably created a fair bit of revenue for DuPont. So I'm imagining that's their motivation for not disclosing that information. So I'm wondering, based on your discussion now, it sounds like it was a self-regulatory process where they don't even have to disclose what they find. So if they had no intentions of even taking any corrective actions, why do those studies in the first place? Well, you know, that, uh, that, that's a great question. And in fact, you know, as, as we uncovered this information and I realized, frankly, what was happening to the cows um, and I, what I found was this chemical, when they found out it was getting into the drinking water, they thought it was coming from the chemical having been dumped in unlined pits around the property. So they had gone and dug up this sludge in these pits, 7,000 tons of it. And they had taken it to this landfill next to Mr. Tennant's property and dumped it there. That's what was getting into the water. And in fact, DuPont had even sampled the water and found, um, you know, a thousand times higher than their own internal guideline in that water. So when I found that out, we were able to settle that case. But then we realized, but it's also in the public's drinking water. And like you said, it wasn't being disclosed. And what we saw was internal tension. You had scientists and lawyers within the company saying this stuff, you know, is not maybe we ought to be switching away to something else. Yet you had the business people who were saying, but it's not regulated and we're not required to. And in fact, what we saw happen is the emissions and the use increased dramatically through the 1980s and through the 1990s and didn't start to trail off until we brought the litigation. And, you know, the law did require that the companies report information about these types of risks, you know, that it was getting into drinking water, that it was incredibly toxic. And the reality is the companies didn't report what they should have reported. And in fact, DuPont ended up getting sued by the US EPA in 2004 for having withheld this information that should have been disclosed because that could have prompted the agencies to begun regulating this decades ago and the amount of exposure to the entire world might have been dramatically lower than it is today. That's incredible. So you started taking this case on because you had a call from a distressed farmer who was concerned about his cows. Then you started doing some digging, learning that the broader community was affected by the forever chemicals. So I wanted to know when you first started practicing law, did you expect that your case and any case that you would ultimately take on would have such a far-reaching impact beyond your immediate client, your immediate community that the client lived in, and just billions of people were consuming this stuff? Did you ever think that you would have such an important impact? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, and, you know, even again, when we first took on the case for Mr. Tennant and his family, you know, at that point, we still thought this was something involving just one farm and one family. And then even when we realized this was in the entire surrounding community's drinking water and, you know, we took on sort of the next phase of litigation and brought a class action lawsuit for that entire community. Again, at that point, we st I, I still didn't fully grasp the scope and scale of what we were dealing with here. 
um, you know, that, that the scope of that really sort of um, revealed itself over the years as we started to see all the different processes and products that these chemicals were used in far beyond that one plant along the Ohio River um, and realized how this chemical moves, you know, that it, it is incredibly mobile in the environment. This stuff can get up into the air from manufacturing sites, move through the clouds, fall in the rain. You know, we're now seeing this stuff in the blood of polar bears in Arctic ice, you know, on the top of Mount Everest. It, these materials aren't, they can just move through the environment and really understanding the scope of all the different products and all the different places this stuff has been used. That only revealed itself over time as we were able to find more and more of these internal documents that showed us the scope of what we were dealing with. And it was very disturbing, frankly, to, you know, to learn this and to, to, to realize we might be the only ones outside of these companies that have seen this data. You know, you're talking about stuff that to us at least made it very clear this was a massive public health threat. These chemicals were toxic, bioaccumulative, persistent, carcinogenic, and they were in, you know, being found in the blood of virtually everyone across the country, possibly across the planet, yet nobody was aware of this. The, the regulators weren't aware. The public wasn't aware. The media had no idea this was happening. You know, so to try to find a way to effectively get information out to the public, to the scientists, to the regulators about the scope and scale of a public health threat, particularly when you're dealing with incredibly complicated science, you know, chemicals that have very long names, complicated names. One chemical may be called six different things. You know, PFOA is also called C8 or FC143. Or, and so it's not like when you talk about lead or arsenic, everyone understands what you're talking about. People understand it. The public understands it. You start talking about PFOA or perfluorooctanone, people's eyes glaze over. So, you know, trying to find how do we get this information out to folks that we can fully start to understand the scope of the problem and to try to address what we were hearing at the time were these gaps in the science. You know, we're seeing all of this scientific data that is going back to the 1960s, all of the toxicology study, all of the studies in the animals, which the reason you do the animal studies is to predict the human health effects. We don't, we're not necessarily concerned that rats are getting cancer or that guinea pigs are, that's not why those, those tests are done. They are to predict human health impacts. So we saw all of that animal data and the argument we heard in response was, well, but those are rats. That's not humans, it's not relevant. So then we started digging through the worker studies of humans at the 3M plant, at the DuPont plant. And we were seeing increased cancer rates, in increased other types of problems. And the response we heard back was, yeah, but they're highly exposed workers. You don't have any evidence that these chemicals will actually cause harm at the dose level, at the level that the people in the community are actually exposed. And that's, of course, because the companies weren't doing those studies. And, you know, this is where we get into one of the reasons why I, I wanted to do the book Exposure. 
was to help people understand how this intersection of the science, the regulatory process, and the law works, particularly in the United States, that it's up to the exposed person to come into court and be able to prove that the chemical at the level they were exposed to it was actually causing harm. And if the company making the chemical sits back, doesn't do those studies, they say, well, you have failed to show that our chemical is harmful. And what we hear, unfortunately, particularly with human health effects, in order to show that this chemical is actually linked with particularly a cancer, you have to have studies that have sufficient power. They have to be big enough. You know, and even though we were pointing to worker studies that showed increased cancer rates, what we heard is, ah, but the study's not big enough. That was only a couple hundred people, or, or maybe the, even with a couple thousand, it's still not big enough. It's not statistically significant sampling size. So you need tens of thousands of people to be able to show those kinds of results, which is what the companies are saying you have to have in order to show there's a problem. That's why this case we were involved in was so unique. We were able to actually do that. It's one of the only times in history, at least in the U.S., where the people who were exposed were able to get enough funding through a settlement to do a study big enough to actually confirm those links with disease. We ended up, in our case, getting 70,000 people to come forward and provide data and to get a big enough sample size to eventually prove those harms. And unfortunately, that's not the way it usually works. Uh, and, and we're seeing that play out right now as these C8s are being phased out and the companies aren't making them. They're simply knocking a couple of carbons off. Instead of C8s, they're making C6s or C4s. And when people are now concerned that they're finding those in their blood or in their water, what we hear from the companies is the same thing we heard about C8 20 years ago. You don't have any evidence that that chemical is causing harm to the people at the levels they're exposed to it. Because once again, they aren't doing the studies. So it's as if you have to start all over again and do these types of studies. And it's incredibly frustrating. And I think most of the public is surprised when they hear that it's their burden <laughs> to prove these things, that those chemicals are almost as if they're presumed innocent until proven harmful. And that's the public's burden to do that. So, Rob, you brought up a very important point about how the people in the community who are the most exposed and the most vulnerable, you know, tend to be the most impacted by this. Can you perhaps talk a bit about how, like, environmental regulations can play a role in this, and especially when it comes to the idea of environmental justice? So how can environmental regulations, you know, provide protections for those people in the community or in society who are the most vulnerable? Well, I mean, the, I think the situation with PFOS provides a, a perfect example. Um, you know, you've got situations where you have these chemicals being manufactured and pumped into the environment for decades and decades, 60, 70 years. And decades after the information is known by the manufacturers that the chemicals present a threat to human health and the environment, um, yet the chemical goes unregulated. And it's because the companies choose not to provide that information. 
you know, it's critically important to, to, to be able to have the ability. Yeah, like, for example, when, when the community finally found out that this particular chemical, PFOA, was in the water out in West Virginia outside that Teflon plant, at that point, there were no federal drinking water standards. There were no state standards. There was nothing to point to to say this is being violated, you know, for somebody to come in and try to say, I want it out of my water. And despite everything that's been done over the last 20 years to confirm what the health effects are from that chemical through independent science to, to confirm the health threat and to the threat to the environment, that even that chemical remains unregulated at the federal level in the United States. There still is not an enforceable drinking water standard. We just now, just recently, heard the US EPA say for the first time after 20 years, we will regulate that, but that's gonna take another couple of years possibly. So it's in the meantime, people have, are, you know, are, are left with the inability to go in and demand, I want that filtered out. I want this cleaned up because if they go into court, they hear, well, what law is being broken? What regulatory standard is being broken? So the lack of those regulations, the lack of those standards allows this kind of situation to just continue on and on because you're told you're not, there's no law being violated. You know, you have to prove that that level is harmful because there's no regulatory standard saying it is harmful. So that's what we've been watching play out, at least in the United States, the last couple of years, as this story about PFAS has finally made its way out to the public through the film, Dark Waters, the documentary, through the book. And people are starting to realize, hey, <laughs> we need to be doing something about this. We're seeing legislation and regulations being proposed at the federal level, which is something I thought I'd never see since it's been 20 years. But the process to get that done is so painstakingly slow and that what we're seeing happen is states, for example, in the U.S. are moving forward on their own you know, to set their own standards and regulations. Companies are actually suing the states to stop them from doing that, <laughs> arguing, well, there's not enough science they, you know, we, that this is being rushed. So you see this incredible tension and debate going on in the U.S. right now as people are finally realizing we need these regulations. We need these standards. We need to move forward with these things. Incredible pushback from the manufacturers. You know, that oh, no, no, no. We need to slow down. You know, the science is uncertain. We don't know enough yet. This is going to destroy the economy. And um, so it really gets down to a debate, you know, about what are we going to prioritize here? Public health or, you know, the, the economic issues that these companies are raising. So, it's, uh, it's, it's incredibly frustrating to the public, to people living in these communities who every day are having to deal with the ongoing exposures while they wait for this fight to go on, which has been going on for 20, 30 years. Yeah, it's almost like playing catch up. I feel like by the time that, you know, legislation or some type of law will be put into place, you have companies creating different versions of these chemicals. And you have to, as you said, it's frustrating. You have to restart that process again each time. Um, where do you think the precautionary principle kind of falls or fits in mitigating the way that like we see these negative effects um, of the forever chemicals and its similar pollutants? 
Well, you know, that's an interesting debate. Uh, and, you know, the precautionary principle is something that we see more readily embraced, for example, in Europe. Um, and we, there's a lot of discussion now um, elsewhere, including in the United States, that we ought to be shifting to a more precautionary approach. You know, that we don't wait until there's absolute 110 percent absolute proven this will make you sick at this specific level. Is Once you hit a certain level of evidence that suggests you've got a problem, you should act before the harm actually occurs, before you have proof that you've got thousands of people with cancer. You know, that you, you don't wait for that. You act before the harm. Um, in the United States, there is a real tension with our existing legal system with this concept. You know, and what you have happen is when folks go into court, you know, we saw this in our cases. Under the, in the U.S. legal system, the person exposed is told it's your burden to prove that you've actually been made sick before you can do this. And in fact, we even had in our, one of our cases with DuPont, the company filing a motion to prohibit the, any reference to the term precautionary principle in front of the jury because it was seen as inconsistent with the legal standard that they were to be applying, where the exposed person had the burden. And the argument was nobody should be suggesting the company should have done something before there was absolute proof of harm. So you've got this tension that's ongoing uh, with between the legal system. And again, one of the reasons I wanted to do the book was to show why does this happen? <laughs> Why are we in the situation we're in where we've got this evidence? We've got the science, for example, on this. The, like, let's take PFOA. The science is in on that. The health threat information is in. Yet, why is it still? Why are we still having this problem getting these regulations done? Why are people still in court battling over this? And it's this tension between what's scientifically known what the legal system requires, what the regulatory process requires, and results in this perfect storm of nothing happening in the meantime. Hopefully on a more positive note, in the conversation earlier, you mentioned super funds. In the book, you also explain super funds. So wh where does super funds fit in the whole environmental pollution landscape? Is it something that's having a positive impact? Is it sort of more, something that's more of a tokenistic thing that's out there that doesn't really have an impact. What are your thoughts on that, the super funds? Well, the super fund statute came out in 1980, mm -hmm. and it was a reaction to places like Love Canal, you know, where there had been, say, old chemical manufacturing operations that massively contaminated the property, but then the company goes bankrupt or it goes away, and you're left with this massive contamination that nobody's paying for. So this fund was created uh, where the chemical companies basically were taxed and you know, this money was used to clean up these sites. And so the way this, the statute worked, once a particular chemical is declared hazardous substance under that statute and it's found at one of these sites, any of the companies that put it there are what they call strictly and jointly liable for cleaning up that whole site. So they have to sit down and figure out which of us pays how much to clean this up. It's strict liability, meaning it doesn't matter whose fault it was. If it's your stuff that's there, you're liable to clean it up. 
So what we're seeing now, right now, in the U.S. at least, is there's legislation pending right now to try to declare PFAS, particularly PFOA and PFOS, as hazardous substances to jumpstart these cleanups. Um, there's the U.S. EPA has announced that they are working on possibly declaring PFOA and PFOS, the C8s, hazardous. That will make these sites where this stuff is located, possible cleanup sites. So there's a lot of debate going on right now because the concern being who should be paying for cleaning up those sites. And one of the reasons we see this being such a big issue is one of these chemicals, PFOS, was one of the principal products that was used and that got it out into the environment for so many years was a type of firefighting foam, AFFF, aqueous film forming foam. That stuff was sprayed outside airports or outside firehouses and places all over the place. It was used to battle petroleum-based fires. The military realized that these chemicals were used at these military bases. Uh, and now you have these contaminated sites where the, the water is contaminated with these chemicals from firefighting foam outside military bases. But in the U.S., the Department of Defense says we're only allowed to spend our money to clean up things that are designated hazardous under the Superfund law. So we're not allowed to clean these up. So that's one of the reasons you have this debate going on right now, is to try to uh, get a mechanism to get those sites cleaned up as well. So Rob, you've talked quite extensively about these legislations and laws that we have in the United States um, to govern and potentially, you know, lack of legislations that we have to govern these forever chemicals. But like, of course, we live in the world of globalization with environmental changes. Global environmental law is also a very important concept to discuss. Um, so are there other countries that are in a similar position when it comes to things like forever chemicals and these pollutants outside of just the U.S.? Can you speak a little bit more uh, about that on a global level? Yeah, this, this is definitely a global problem, and it is attracting global attention now. Um, we see sites, um, you know, not only all over the United States, but you have very similar types of manufacturing operations that occurred in Europe, in Asia. Uh, you know, we've got military bases, for example, in Japan, you know, where this firefighting foam has contaminated the drinking water. You have firefighting foam contamination in Australia and New Zealand. You have massive uh, PFAS contamination outside manufacturing sites in Germany, in Belgium, in Italy in particular, where hundreds of thousands of people have this in their drinking water in Italy. So it, it has become a global problem that's getting global awareness. And what we also see now happening is people are looking for global approaches to this because these chemicals don't respect international or state boundaries or lines. They move globally. As I mentioned before, you know, if it's great that under a, an agreement that was struck back in 2006, the companies agreed to stop making the C8s in the United States. That was a 10-year phase-out. By 2015, there would be none of those made in the U.S. Unfortunately, some of that manufacturing still occurs in other places, like in China. So what we've seen happen is as long as those things are still being made, they're still getting into our global environment. They're still being put into the air where they can get into water droplets that move across the planet in clouds and fall in the rain or they come in products that are shipped in from other countries, whether they're 
supposed to be there or should have been disclosed or not. So you've got global contamination and you really need to address it on a global scale. So we're seeing these chemicals um, being proposed for outright bans in Europe, for example, um, under international treaties like the Stockholm Convention, the POPs Treaty, you know, to try to address these. And what we're also seeing happen is recognition that there's a real concern about addressing these one at a time, like we're doing in the U.S. You know, here we started with the C8s because that's what we first focused on. That's what we got this, the studies that were done in West Virginia and Ohio. And we finally got those phased out. But now we have C6s and C4s. And as the toxicology studies are being done on C6, for example, first cancer study comes in, shows the exact same tumors as PFOA. So scientists and regulators are saying, this just becomes the whack-a-mole game. You know, you, you finally get to the point of regulating or addressing one of them. You tweak it a bit. You call it something new and you're starting all over. So we're seeing global demands for addressing the chemicals as a class, for example, like you do with PCBs or dioxins, you know, that, that you need to address these, not only the chemical on a global scale, but also the chemical class in a more comprehensive way. Um, and so that debate is raging and is particularly heating up in the U.S., where there are groups that want to see these chemicals addressed class-wide uh, and, and the, the companies wanting it to only be the C8s at this point. Uh, and so and then you have groups in between. Well, how about, you know, six or seven of them? Uh, but it, that is something that is an ongoing debate now. And, and frankly, how do you define what's the definition of chemicals that fit this class? So uh, it's, it's incredibly um, complex and uh, ever changing. It spans over a decade. You've seen changes in the way that environmental law approaches this concept and trying to define that. But at the same time, we've seen One Health also kind of get defined over the years. And perhaps that One Health approach that Gordon mentioned earlier may be a nice partnering with something like this, you know, in approaching this issue. But when we talk about over the last couple decades and the work that you've been doing um, you know, environmental law for sure has changed as we've learned more about the environment and how we impact it positively or negatively. And this case, 100% was probably very pivotal in your identity as a lawyer and your career quick started a way that you probably never envisioned when you first became a lawyer. Um, how has it shaped you as in your career, how you approach other cases that come up during your career and perhaps just how you approach overall law? Yeah, I think it's it certainly, it has evolved. When I first started, uh, particularly with Mr. Tennant's case back in the late 1990s, and as we first started, you know, for the for first community case a couple of years later, um, you know, most of what I was doing was focused solely within the legal sphere, you know, writing briefs to courts, trying to present the data. And really throughout that process continuing to this day, really kind of having my eyes opened to the fact that as a lawyer, you know, in order to, to zealously and fully represent your client to the best of your abilities, you know, that involves other things as well. Uh, that particularly with a with situation like this, where you're dealing with chemicals, where there's an incredible wealth of information known about the toxicity, the dangers of the chemicals, that are within internal company documents that aren't out there 
in the published peer review literature or in the, the scientific literature, you know, that you've got to find ways to get this public health threat information out as well. Um, you know, that learning and understanding the way regulations are set, how the regulatory process works, you know, how many people are there in an agency that are actually reviewing these files, you know, and what's their funding and how's that happening and what's the length of time and how does that process works and who is able to frankly go back and manipulate that process, uh, you know, where there's groups that are trying to slow down regulations or things of that nature, but also understanding the way science is developed, you know, how the publication process works, how peer review works, who's being actually doing the peer review when the only ones who know anything about your chemical are within, you know, two or three companies. Uh, are they essentially keeping out, you know, information from getting published? You know, so understanding that whole scientific process. Um, and also incredibly important is understanding how does this information get messaged and conveyed in a way that the public can understand it and understand the threat. So you've ended, one of the things I became aware is, unfortunately, folks within the public health field, either on the regulatory side, the scientific community, the legal community, tend to be siloed and they work within their own narrow world. You know, the scientists go to their scientific conferences and present papers there and speak the language the scientists speak. The lawyers in court speak their lawyer language. The regulators, you've got to find ways to cross those different boundaries and have these different groups working together to be able to bring something like this that's so complicated, so science-based, so legal-based, uh, but find ways to make the concepts understandable for, for the public, uh, for the media, you know, to be able to communicate that. And that's one of the things that really was fascinating to me was watching the process, for example, of making a feature film, you know, like Dark Waters or the documentary and seeing how like a screenwriter could take this information, but convey it in a way that people understand how this impacts them, how this is impacting real people, you know, as opposed to the scientific process of how this chemical behaves, you know, seeing the real impact in a real community. So finding ways to bring all of that together, you know, is, is to me been fascinating because we're now seeing that can work. You know, bridging those gaps, bringing these different groups from these different disciplines together, getting a story out, it can lead to incredible change. We, I never thought I would see legislation being proposed or the president of the United States standing up talking about needing to address PFAS, you know, or allocating $10 billion to clean it up. Although, frankly, that's taxpayer money should be coming from the companies. But at least there's recognition this is a problem and it's finally getting out to the public in a way that people are understanding it. You know, frankly, just using a term, using the term forever chemical, as opposed to perfluorooctanoic acid, you know, that people can understand instantly when they hear it, what it means. So you know, what I, it's a long way of saying, I've seen my role as a lawyer evolve and it needs to encompass all these different disciplines and you need to be mindful of all those disciplines in order to effectively advocate for clients, people that are exposed people to, you know, that are dealing with 
unregulated chemicals and are trying to figure out why can't I get this cleaned up? You know, why can't I get the money that's needed to address this and to be able to work through all those systems at the same time? Thank you for sharing that so eloquently. And I'm thinking along those lines, you talked about the importance of communicating the information in a way that can be understood, easily digestible. What are some of your take-home messages for our audience? Well, I'm hoping if people are able to see just even the film, Dark Waters, or the documentary, or read the book, to see that a single person can make a huge difference. It is possible. You know, people may think, how do I take on a multinational corporation? You know, this is the way it's always worked. You know, this is the way, this is the United States, for example. We, you know, we can't change the way they rule. You can change it. You know, a single farmer in West Virginia was able to stand up, speak out and say, this isn't the way it should work. It may be the way it's always been done, but this needs to change. And it might take a long time. (laughs) It might be difficult, but it's doable. And this is a situation I think that shows it can be done. And I'm really thankful for programs like what you're doing with podcasts, where it's incredibly important in my view that people talk about this and that they share these stories. Um, You know, I'm still amazed how many times I'm speaking to groups and I'll ask people how many have heard of PFAS. One hand out of 100 people in the groups, it come up. You know, it's still... Most people, even in the U.S., have never heard of this stuff, have no idea why it's important. And now, unfortunately, we're even hearing that some of the most significant public health concerns with these chemicals. Our research back, you know, a decade ago had linked them with six diseases, including two types of cancer. But the more recent research is now showing the concern being impacts to our immune system and the possible decrease of effectiveness of vaccines. <laughs> you know, if you go to the, the US CDC site right now, they've got ongoing studies trying to see if there's a connection there. I mean, think about the impact of that. Chemicals that are in everyone's blood, in drinking water all over the planet that may have that kind of effect while we're all dealing with the pandemic. So, I mean, it's, it's something that to me, everybody needs to be talking about and sharing this story and demanding that these that things be changed so that this doesn't keep happening and it doesn't happen again. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. See you in the next one.